Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day low actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus welcome back to strike talk uh, in a week in which a former president has been indicted for federal crimes for the first time in American history, we're going to stay on point, on message, and talk about the Writers Guild strike and all of the issues that surround it. This has been um, a very impactful week, I think, um, in that work stoppage because the DGA and the AMPTP have reached a deal. I have seen a PDF of the deal, so I have some sense of, of what's in there. Um, Todd, what, what's your gut? Yeah, so I mean, the DGA, uh, in theory, has has reached a settlement. Obviously, the devil's in the details, as you pointed out when we spoke about this earlier this week. And um, you will all have to, as members of the DGA, to go through all of those points. It's been reported that the residual deal seemed reasonable, but that there is some issues around AI that the language may not go far enough for uh, a great a great deal of the members that have read that. PDF. I have not read the PDF. So, so where do you come out on it? Well, a few things. First, I'm a member of both guilds, um, but I tend to think of the Writers Guild as us and the DGA as them. I think it's because I was a writer for a long time before I had ever directed. And I still think of myself as a writer who occasionally directs. Um, you know, when I think of a director, I think of Steven Spielberg, and I know that's not me. But having said that, I think the DGA believes that it gets a premium for never going on strike. And reasonable people, reasonable people can disagree about that. What I think and what I actually, what I've seen to be true, having been inside the negotiations three times, is that what the DGA gets is largely on the back of the leverage provided by the writers because the writers either are willing to go on strike or in this case have actually gone on strike. Um, of course, the DGA gets more in its deal if the Writers Guild is on strike. Um, because the DGA can ask for more and has the pressure applied by the writers, um, which has to be answered by the AMPTP. I do not believe that there are things in this DGA deal that are historic, even though that's a word that is used constantly in DGA press releases. I do think they've made some meaningful gains uh, in some areas that will pattern to writers. Um, and I think that that will be helpful when we sit down again to negotiate with the AMPTP. I don't think they got enough on AI. I need to study the deal in, in greater depth, uh, but I'm a little suspicious of, again, that press release saying, hey, we got a 76% increase in foreign residuals. Well, you didn't have any before. So 76% more than nothing 
it still doesn't get you up to where you need to be. And it certainly doesn't get writers up to where they need to be. I think you're going to see that a lot of the subscription video on demand stuff, I think a lot of that's going to migrate into uh, ad supported video on demand. So you got to pay attention to those numbers. Uh, there are a lot of moving pieces out there. And I know the DGA has a real sensitivity to being criticized uh, for not getting enough. I know that's a very painful thing for the DGA. Um, that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is uh, I don't believe they made historic progress here. I just think they made a deal. And we'll have to see if it helps uh, to use that deal as the beginning of a template when the Writers Guild uh, sits down to negotiate. Now, all that said, the real big news is coming when the SAG negotiations start. That's going to be the linchpin to everything. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and just going back to what you were saying about the DGA and the WGA, it, it, it is something that has occurred to me in these last two strikes. Again, and I know that the WGA doesn't have total control over it. But it, it does seem like it's time for the WGA to move its contract behind the DGA if, 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 the, if it's at all possible. Because as you said, it would just give the writers so much more information and leverage to see what the DGA is willing to negotiate, then decide if it's enough, then decide to go on strike. That, that seems to me... A, a better system for, for, for all involved. I mean, I may be wrong. No, you, you're, you are completely right. But I can tell you in 2017, that is the sequence that existed and we couldn't get the DGA to tell us what was in their deal. Got it. Um, literally, one guild would not co cooperate with its sister guild. Um, I also think there's a, there's a bigger picture here, which is that the Writers Guild is demanding data. Um, and I know that the DGA went in and demanded data as well. Um, but the fact is that the streamers are never going to make that data available because um, if the streamers made their actual data available, they'd have to report gigantic losses and Wall Street would walk out on them. So any negotiation that's based on complete transparency uh, about data in streaming is going to fail um, because they'd rather uh, endure a strike than, than become transparent uh, with their actual numbers on the streaming side. And by the way, as we constantly talk about um, the, the, the contrast between the legacy medias, legacy media companies and the new media companies, the fact is that even the legacy media companies have all gone to the streaming model um, and they are all chasing it and, and it may lead them off a cliff. Um, but right now they've decided that's where they want to go, which means they will become less and less transparent with their data as well. These are not box office numbers that we could just pick up variety every Monday morning and look at when we were in, you know, in the 1980s and 90s. Um, that's over. We are now negotiating with people who don't want to share data. Um, and we're going to figure out a way to negotiate uh, to, to work within that construct. Right. Well, then that does lead us to SAG um, and their negotiations have begun. Um, SAG, for the, for the members that voted, overwhelmingly voted uh, in favor, almost unanimously, unanimously in favor for their guild leadership to have the strike authorization to use that as as leverage against the AMPTV. And I and I have been thinking a lot about this, and it just seems to me, and this is just, just my opinion, it seems to me that the AMPTV must know the number of what a total work stoppage would cost worldwide. Obviously, the uh, WGA has been very successful in Los Angeles and New York so far of shutting down almost all the productions in, in those cities, and now it's, and it's moved to Atlanta and is having success there. But I mean, a total worldwide stoppage, which would occur if SAG went on strike. It seems to me the AMPTV must know that number, given that we've had a total 
pandemic shutdown. They must know the daily costs and it, it has to be astronomical. And I just can't understand the logic behind if, if that number is large as it appears to be, it doesn't appear that what the three guilds are asking for in, in totality could equal the number of a long worldwide work stoppage. I agree, but go back to the prediction that was made on this podcast a few weeks ago. Um, the prediction was that the DGA will make a deal in which they get some gains um, on all the money issues. Um, that's now happened. Then the second part of that will be SAG will come in needing to shore up its pension and health plan, as SAG always does, because the pension and health plans are always in trouble over there. Um, they'll get that. And then the companies will offer them, you know, meaningful consultation on AI, but no guarantees. And because SAG's primary goal is the pension and health stuff, um, I think it's going to be tough for them to walk out. So if that's true, then the AMPTP will have secured a deal with the DGA. That part's done. Then they will secure a deal with SAG. I don't think uh, the SAG membership will be happy about it, but I think the SAG membership will, will accept it rather than a strike. And then the plan will be, okay, we've got the writers isolated. We don't have to have a global work stoppage because SAG is going to keep working and it's now just the writers on their own. And I think at that moment, um, AMPTP will have achieved Carol Lombardini's strategy. Um, the difference is that in 2008, when the DGA made its deal, it instantly triggered um, a reaction on the writer side, which is, okay, let's get back to the table and let's make a deal. I'm hearing none of that on the picket lines now. Nobody out there is saying, oh, let's just take the DGA deal. Nobody is saying that. The writers are willing to do this on their own um, if we have to. That's a difference from 2008. Um, that does change the calculation of all of it. It does sadly indicate we may be out there longer than anybody wants to be, but I, I think that's the dynamic that's coming. Um, not sure. It's an educated guess, but it's not more than that. Um, but I think that's what's coming. Again, I, again, I, I, I don't know enough about residuals because as a producer, I don't I obviously don't get them. Uh, so it, 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 do you think then the, the, the two issues that will, be, will remain for the writers specifically will be mini rooms and AI? Will, will, that, will, that, will that be the two outlying points that will be uh, lines in the sand, do you think? Uh, I think they will be among the biggies that are left out there. Uh, AI for sure. Uh, writers have got to get some protections on AI. And that will become very, very clear uh, when our next episode drops, uh, which is actually an interview with AI. I think many rooms are going to be a point of contention, but I really don't think that is going to be uh, where the problem ultimately is. You know, the Writers Guild has said, we want X number of writers guaranteed in a room and the studios have said, no thanks. Okay, we made a proposal, they'll counter, we'll figure out a number that makes sense. I, I think that one's going to be fine. I think in just about every area, the DGA deal needs to be improved upon. I think it will be. Ultimately, what this will come down to is do we reach a breaking point where the legacy media companies are so starved for, um, for new production um, that they will have to say to the new media companies, you guys are on your own. And the legacy media companies just go make their own deal with the WGA. I think that's, that is a possibility. Um, I'm sure they don't want to talk about that, but I think it's a possibility. And again, 
if SAG surprises me and and walks out, uh, that changes everything. Look, at the end of the day, David Zasloff doesn't answer to the other members of the AMPTP. He answers to his shareholders. And at a certain point, his shareholders are going to say, what the fuck? Like, why are we enduring this strike when the solution is so simple? Just go make a deal. And at that point, the guild will do what it has historically done. It will make waivers. Um, it will allow for some companies to sign on to the terms and leave other companies out in the cold. And if you're Warner's Discovery and you really want to put a dent into your competitors, uh, which are the new media companies, that's how I would do it. But uh, I don't make those calls. He does. Got it. As always, great to talk to you. Yes, sir. Good morning. and Thank you. Thank you. And we are now going to get on with the rest of our next episode. I'll see you later, Todd. Thank you, Billy. You might not know his name, but Walter Ruther was a giant. He was born in West Virginia in 1907, soon moved to Detroit to work in an auto plant. In 1936, he was elected to lead a local of the United Auto Workers that had 78 members. In a single year, he grew it to 30,000 members. Ruther saw labor movements as vehicles to advance social justice. In that same year, 1936, he demanded equal pay for women at a Ford plant and won it in the depths of the Depression. He became national president of the UAW in 1946, ultimately leading 5 million members. This was when manufacturing accounted for 32% of all U.S. jobs. That number is now 8.5%. He believed in Debsian socialism but loathed communism. He fervently tied unionism to environmentalism, humanism, and civil rights. He sat on the National Advisory Board of the NAACP, spoke out against racism and apartheid, joined the march from Selma to Montgomery, shared the stage with Martin Luther King at the March on Washington. The famed hysteric Senator Barry Goldwater once said that Ruther was more dangerous to America than Russia was. Ruther led sit-down strikes and walkouts. He mastered pattern bargaining. When UAW contracts came to term, Ruther would determine which of the big three automakers was having the worst year, Ford, GM, or Chrysler, and bring that company to the table. He'd get the deal he wanted from that weakened company, then force the other two to take the same deal. Imagine if the WGA could do that, negotiate with one studio at a time instead of taking them all on at once, and setting patterns with a company that could least afford a strike, terms which the others would have to accept. Ruther was a big picture thinker. He once demanded that GM increase worker pay by 30% without raising the price of a single car. They settled at 18%, and the price of GM cars stayed the same. Not surprisingly, Ruther had to survive two assassination attempts. The second was a shotgun blast through his kitchen window that shattered his arm bone into 150 pieces. He never regained full use of it. In 1954, Ruther was touring Ford's Cleveland plant with Henry Ford II, son of noted anti-Semite Henry Ford I. Ford the Elder had stunned the country in 1914 by paying his workers $5 a day, double the average national wage. Why? So they could buy Fords. He wanted to create a middle class. Now, as Henry II led Ruther through the Cleveland plant, they spotted machines on the assembly line doing jobs once done by UAW members. Because he was an insufferable prick, Henry II joked, gee, Walter, I wonder how you're going to get those robots to pay union dues. Ruther famously replied, Henry, I wonder how many of them are going to buy Fords. At their peak, unions represented 40% of the American workforce. Today, that number is 6%. Half of those union jobs are in seven states, and none of those states are in the South. On average, union jobs pay 11% more than non-union jobs. This is doubly true for women, people of color, and those without a college degree. 
UPS drivers and FedEx drivers do the same job. UPS drivers are represented by the Teamsters. FedEx drivers are non-union. UPS drivers make $3 more per hour. Unions fight for and gain safer workplaces, pension and health plans. They are a barrier against economic injustice. In the 40s and 50s, unions created an entry into the middle class for black Americans when almost no other paths made that possible. Those decades weren't perfect, but back then when the American economy boomed, workers boomed too. The assembly line worker who could own a cabin on a lake was a real thing. When union membership was higher, the middle class swelled and claimed a higher percentage of American wealth, which it spent on American products. When union membership fell, all that wealth migrated to the richest 1% in the nation, who buy a lot of islands in the South Pacific, but not a lot of Fords. So it's time to ask some big picture questions. The goal of a union is to take the wage out of competition, meaning if Ford wants to do better than Toyota, it ought to just design better cars than Toyota, as opposed to just paying its employees less. Shouldn't that be true of streamers as well? Do they really think the best route to economic success is by paying writers less? And what happens to our country if corporations continued on this path of squeezing workers? The answer is simple. America will lose. And then who will buy American products? Anti-union activity has long been a cottage industry in America. Anti-union lobbying is a billion-dollar business. That perpetuates a cycle. If unions aren't strong, they don't get attention from Congress members. So the only auto worker a member hears from is the guy who owns eight car dealerships in that member's district. That impacts legislation and policy. Take McDonald's, for example, or Motel 6, national chains. Their employees should be part of national unions, right? No. Our government, in its anti-union fervor, decided that McDonald's employees are working for a single restaurant, not the parent company. And Trump's NLRB enshrined this. So millions of workers go unrepresented, even though they're all doing the same jobs for the same company. In our business, SAG used to cover all commercials. Now it covers less than half. The result? Actors on non-SAG commercials make one-tenth of what they'd make on SAG-covered commercials, which means lower contributions to SAG's pension and health plans, which are always in trouble. The bottom line is this. Intellectual labor is still labor. Last year, 48,000 graduate students in the University of California system were suffering under unfair working conditions and, and low wages. So they struck. Do you know who organized them? The United Auto Workers. 25% of UAW's membership is now grad students. Why? Because intellectual labor is still labor. This speaks to me because I've always thought of myself as a mechanic. Writing isn't magic. 95% of it is problem solving. You have to arc a character from point A to point Z, so you get under the hood and you make the engine work. I don't think of myself as an artist, ever. I just do my job. My union protects me as I do it. And by the way, the striking UC graduate students succeeded. They won. As I said, the enemies of unions are many. Don't believe me? Go to the Universal Lot, where Comcast has literally torn up the sidewalks to keep picketers away. Not a great way of dispelling your reputation as a heartless corporate monolith, but a very useful message. Remember, this strike isn't about fairness. Most people feel they're treated unfairly. It's about extinction, the decimation of a middle-class living, the workers who got replaced in that Ford plant in Cleveland in 1954, and all the American products they'd never again be able to buy. Walter Ruther died in a plane crash in 1970. No one ever proved foul play, but parts in the small plane's altimeter had been installed upside down. Coretta Scott King, in her eulogy of him, said he was fighting the fight of the whole world. Other eulogists talked about Ruther's guts, his vision, his love of humanity, and even about his car, the 1949 Woody that he famously drove to union rallies in the 1950s. 
It had been built, of course, by Ford. Joining me today are two people who have a lot to say about the American labor movement. Both are distinguished members of Congress, Becca Ballant of Vermont and Ro Khanna of California. I'm grateful for their service and honored to have them here. Welcome to you both. Hello, Billy. Hi, Billy. So my first question is, uh, what level of awareness, if any, is there in D.C. of the WGA strike? I think there's an awareness because the shows aren't coming on. And uh, that's right. The, uh, <laughs> you know, I uh, I was appreciated uh, being out in New York early on uh, on one of the strikes uh, and encouraging uh, the writers. And to me, it's pretty simple. I mean, you have new technology streaming services created by uh, many people in my district. I mean, you've basically got Apple, uh, Netflix, uh, Disney, uh, uh, as the Amazon is probably the emerging uh, streaming services for, for content in this country. And the model of compensation has not changed for writers. So where writers used to get guaranteed uh, uh, more funding uh, for a number set number of shows, now they're not guaranteed that under a streaming model. And we've got to adjust their compensation to accommodate the streaming model, which is making a ton of money for uh, these technology companies and for, for corporations. And they need to have a say in uh, what's going to be their role with, with AI. Uh, my concern is not that, the, that suddenly AI is going to be producing Hamlet. My concern is that we're all going to be uh, get used to having a sub-quality entertainment and not care that there's no Hamlet. What should the government's role be in all of this? We have, we all believe in capitalism, but we all believe in capitalism with guardrails. We all see that the balance is out of whack, that the corporatization of America has gone out of control. What is government's appropriate role in trying to monitor, regulate, keep it all fair? And, and let's talk historically about Taft-Hartley, et cetera. Yeah, what I was thinking about, Billy, is that when we think about uh, the damage that was done under Taft-Hartley, we still have the legacy of those decisions where we had um, a swing that happened away from labor and towards management. And so one of the pieces of legislation I'm really keen to pass is one called the PRO Act, which is protecting the right to organize. And the fact that we need this is a, is a testimony to uh, the, the weakening of the unions, and we've seen that hollowing out of the middle class. So I think uh, passing the PRO Act is one important step we could take. The other um, ancillary issue that I think would give workers more power uh, would be to pass a, a universal health care bill. Right now, you've got workers who feel like they need to stay in their jobs, not because they like their jobs, not because they feel particularly good at their jobs, but they know they will lose their health care. So it is restricting their choice. Uh, I would just say we need a uh, policy that centers the working class. Uh, and that means making sure that we raise finally the federal minimum wage. I mean, the wage has been stuck at $7.25. At the very least, it should be $15. It means making sure, as Becca pointed out, that we have universal health care, Medicare for all in this country. If you look at the wage stagnation in America, it is directly tied to the amount of money that people are having to spend on health care. 
All of that money should have been going to workers to give them raises, but instead is going to insurance companies. It means making sure that companies can't spend millions of dollars to stop workplace democracy. When workers want to bargain and all of them want to organize, as is happening in Starbucks, as is happening in places at Amazon, at Chipotle, you shouldn't have corporations be able to hire fancy lawyers to stop that workplace democracy. You know, Bill, we know what needs to be done. It's not a question of figuring out the uh, right economic policy. It's a matter of having the political will. But even that goes back to the auto industry because the reason that we have healthcare tied to our jobs is because at the end of World War II, all the auto workers wanted more money and all of the auto plants said, we don't have any more. And so they settled on giving them health care. And there, thereby, we tied the idea of health care to your work, which means that if you are working in a meatpacking plant right now and you have a great idea for an app that might change your life forever, mm-hmm. you can't actually go start that because you'd have to give up the benefits of, uh, of working in that plant. So how do we uncouple, how do we uncouple that idea? Billy, I think about that all the time. Um, When I talk to, so I represent Vermont, and when I talk to Vermonters, the number of people who tell me, if I didn't have to worry about where I was going to get my health care, you know, I would start a business. I would start a nonprofit. I would, you know, I would hang a shingle out and and be a sole, you know, proprietor, or I would do the thing that I was called to do that I'm talented at, whatever that thing might be. So in fact, not only are we stifling freedom, we're stifling creativity. And you know, I was thinking about that a lot in terms of you know, how you came to this with the writer's strike. It is often about stifling creativity because the more you have choice, the more you have a dynamism, you're not going to have um, you know, a few folks at the top whether it's generating the content or, or you know, being able to raise money off of that content. Dynamism is uh, the thing that I think drives um, so much of the the many uh, economic organisms within our states. And I'm wondering, Ro, if you see that in California as well. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, believe we need to think about what freedom means. And uh, FDR defined it well, where he said, to have freedom in this country, you need a job. To have freedom in this country, you need health care. To have freedom in this country, you need to be well-fed. To have freedom in this country, in the modern world, you need child care. And so a lot of the policies that Democrats, that progressives have been arguing for are policies that would enhance Americans' freedom to be able to live the life with their families, with their neighbors, uh, with their friends that they they want to live. So let's go back to where it started. Um, Let's go back to Taft-Hartley. Can you take us through Taft-Hartley? Ro, do you want to go? Well, I'll just give you a a high level uh, overview. I mean, basically Truman signed, uh, they they overrode uh, Truman's veto of the bill. Uh, in Taft-Hartley to the Republican Congress. And we had made uh, progress uh, with the National Labor Relations Board, with the Wagner Act. Uh, the union movement was growing. 
people got concerned uh, that in the business uh, community that this was growing too strong, that workers were having uh, too much uh, power, and they basically limited uh, in many, many conditions on the types of strikes workers could have. Uh, they limited workers going to strike in solidarity for uh, workers in another industry. Uh, they allowed employers to, to run a lot of campaigns against uh, union organizing. Uh, it, made it basically made it very hard to, uh, to organize. And that's why we have only 6 7% uh, membership in the private sector in unions. I was just coincidentally this morning, uh, some of the Israeli labor movement was in my office and they said 25% of that country is unionized. So the labor participation rate in our country is very low. And it's largely because of the policy choices we made with Taft-Hartley. What do you think was the result um, of the 80s? Uh, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, lots of deregulation, uh, union busting, although Reagan himself had been the president of, of a union, um, SAG, the firing of, uh, of 14,000 air traffic controllers. It all seemed to me to be under the guise of fairness to owners. Um, and that was always how it was sold. But what do you think the knock-on effect of the 80s has been? I think the 80s was a, a market absolutism that celebrated capital and uh, corporate leaders above all else. And they became the symbols of uh, American success as opposed to the working and middle class being the symbols of American success. The consequence was the hollowing out of American manufacturing, hollowing out of American production, hollowing out of the heartland of this country, hollowing out of inner cities in America where jobs left. All that mattered is if corporations were doing well, if uh, consumer prices were low, uh, and uh, a race for cheap labor and low environmental standards, and that was celebrated. And it led to an increase in the stock market. It led to massive wealth generation, uh, but it also led to the hollowing out of the country that is in part caused the polarization that we're uh, currently living with. And so now President Biden, I think, is re-envisioning uh, that and saying, obviously capital matters, obviously business leaders matter, entrepreneurship matters, but that's not the center for America. That's not the North Star. The North Star is being a country that makes things, produces things that values the working and middle class, and he's shifting us back uh, into the, a paradigm before Reagan. You know, I thought that part of what was so successful about his State of the Union address, uh, which was liked by 72% of Americans, was that in every sentence he was making the American worker the hero of the story. Um, when I think about the 80s, I think about Lee Iacocca, and I think about those kind of guys. And they, you're right, they became the stars as opposed to the American yeah. worker, and so much was lost with it. Becca? Yes, I, I agree with that completely. And, you know, you mentioned the air traffic, air traffic control strike. And if you remember, Reagan really took his case directly to the American people, right? It was essentially these workers um, are are whiny and they're complaining and doesn't it impact us terribly to have them inconvenience all of us by this strike he took it directly to the american people you know 
was able to turn American travelers, American workers against this group of people who were overworked and underpaid. And this is um, a play that we see over and over again, which is we want, um, you know, you've got people in power telling the American people that they don't actually see what's going on, that we know better, and that what you should do actually is throw over your, your coworkers because you don't want to be inconvenienced. And I think it, Americans it, within the workforce right now are so overwhelmed. That's what I hear you know, from, from my constituents. Everybody is piecing together several jobs to make ends meet because they don't have a job that has either security or benefits. And so it is a divide and conquer uh, methodology. And as Rose said, I think the president, and as you stated in State of the Union, he's trying to wrestle that narrative back. And I think he's he's having some success, thankfully. Absolutely. This is why Henry Ford raised wages for his workers. This is why Adam Smith has said that the person who's bagging the groceries should be able to afford the groceries and afford clothing and afford housing. I mean, the uh, the essence of uh, capitalism is a fair wage and is making sure that people who are doing the work are paid enough to be able to have uh, a basic standard of life. And we have uh, allowed that to atrophy in this country. And the sad thing is we've allowed it to atrophy as wealth generation has exploded in places like my district. Uh, it, there's no reason that we can't in this country have anyone who works uh, uh, a, 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 a 40 hour week be able to afford a house and be able to or, or a place to live and be able to take care of their family. Now, it looked from the outside, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but it looked from the outside like Senators Manchin and Cinema gutted a lot of pro-union components of the Build Back Better Act. Um, am I wrong in that assumption? Well, they gutted a lot more than the pro-union things. They gutted childcare. They gutted uh, uh, much, much of the investments in housing. They gutted uh, uh, expansion of uh, Medicare. I mean, they uh, were the single biggest oppositional force to uh, President Biden's agenda for uh, investing in workers. And they, they gutted uh, free community college. Uh, it really was a, a tragedy. But I guess what it shows is that uh, we need uh, broader majorities. I mean, what President Biden managed to achieve with Ron Klain through uh, a House that had a few seats in the Senate that was evenly divided was nothing short of remarkable. And Chuck Schumer deserves credit as well. The, the challenge is we need more seats. Becca, let's talk about the PRO Act and use it as a specific uh, case study. What are you going to have to do to get it passed? How is lobbying going to influence it? Can, can you take us through that? Well, certainly labor is out in force on the Hill. And I have a lot of um, labor organizations that I talk to uh, frequently. This is their number one priority is passing the PRO Act to try to get um, things more in balance in terms of the level of power that management has compared to labor. Um, I'm curious, Ro, when you think about how uh, the PRO Act you know, made, made some movement and, and has not yet passed, where do you see the, the holdup? Well, I believe, uh, one, it needs to be a, a priority for us. In the past, we've had moments where we've had uh, the, uh, the presidency, House and Senate, and haven't been able to, to, to get it done. Uh, we need to get rid of the filibuster to be able to, to get it done. I think the 60th Senate 
threshold is, is too high, and and that's been one of the the obstacles to uh, getting that done. Uh, and then we need you know to be able to win the House majority and Senate majority again. I think in the past we weren't willing to get rid of the filibuster. That has changed. So if we have sizable majorities again, I do believe we'll get it done. Is there any Republican support for it? There, there may be a few, a handful in the, in the House. I don't know in the Senate, but this is largely going to take uh, Democratic majorities. We need five more, five more seats. Speaking of votes, uh, that's where our conversation ended because at that exact moment, they got called to the House floor to vote. For the rest of us, it's easy to be discouraged when you think about the dysfunction in uh, our political system. But then you hear from people like Roe or Becca uh, who are so smart and so thoughtful and in it for the right reasons. And there are quite a few of them in Congress and we'll bring more of them onto the show. What they do is walk the walk for all of us. And I find that extremely moving. So I want to offer something to them because I think it represents what they do. It's my favorite passage uh, from the Talmud. Not that I've read the entire Talmud, by the way. But this is also for everybody who's on the picket line. And it's for everybody in the families of the people on the picket line. It's for everybody in our business who's affected by the picket line. And I know there are many. I know there's a lot of pain out there. And as I, as I said earlier, this is for the people in the coffee shops and, and, and the dry cleaners and all the businesses that surround our business that are affected by this. Um, I know there's pain being spread everywhere. But this passage helps me a lot. I hope it will help you. It's very brief. It goes like this. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. That's sort of how I feel about this whole thing. It's how I feel about politics. It's how I feel about my country. It's how I feel about this strike. Um, it's how I feel about my business. Um, let's do justly now. Let's love mercy now. Let's walk humbly now. Let's do our best and get this thing fixed. Um, I want to send out a big thank you to uh, our producer, Shane Whitaker. Please join us next week. Uh, when our guests will be Mary Pickford and Lionel Barrymore. Till then, this is Strike Talk. Thanks, everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power. Loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.